I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. All right, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 72 on The Best of Lee Brackett. Joining us today is that miner from the planet Mercury, Hoy. N-E-R. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. M-I-N-E-R. Uh, and the founder of Contessicon, author of Zaya's Promise for Swords and Wizardry, the designer of Swords and Wizardry 3rd Printing, featured in Unframed, The Art of Improvisation for Game Masters, and co-founder of your, uh, sorry, co-designer of your best game ever, Stacey Delarfano. Hi! Hello, Stacey. <laughs> So good, good to have morning. you. Hey, Stacey. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I haven't actually completed a book in a long time. That wasn't an RPG book. So this was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> and this was a, a hefty-ish tome. To yeah, complete, oh, yeah. So. Yeah. 400 and some odd pages. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> So, Stacy, go ahead and if you can, let us know a little bit about your gaming background. Uh, okay, so I started gaming when I was around 16 and 17. Um, I was a band geek, and um, lots of lots of performing arts nerds are also gaming nerds. So, you know, those those Venn diagram circles, you know, managing on top of each other. So I had some friends who played D&D. Oh, it was AD and D second edition at the time. And um, I, I, I got a hold of somebody's book that was all beat up and was falling apart and everything already. You know, it was still pretty new. And I just <laughs> fell in love with it immediately. You know, it was just like, this is the thing I want to do because I love creating things, you know. And, and this is like the ultimate creation world, you know. So I kept trying to get people to run it for me so that I could play a game. And, and, and all of my friends were like, oh, yeah, I'll eventually run it. Yeah, yeah, sure, I'll run it for you. you know? And you know how they are, friends are like that, and they never do it. Mm-hmm. So finally, I was like, fine, I'm going to GM. You know, that's, that's the only way that, that I'm going to see this game is if I do it. <laughs> so I immediately started out GMing, just like right Amazing. there. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, I, I stuck with it. I, you know, I've been, I'm 44 now. So, you know, I've, I've been with it that long. And um, I, for a while I did um, MMOs because I worked in the video game industry on MMOs. Um, but, you know, that I, I always came back to tabletop gaming. There's just something about, um, creating your own world and your own stories and, and, and putting your own characters in there that really just, just kept pulling me back mm-hmm. and away from the video game world. Right. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. So now, you know, I, I, I run Contessa. I, I do some, um, um, uh, freelance stuff, you know, whenever I have time and, um, write my own stuff and, um, run a couple of my own, uh, uh, um, games online, online right now. <laughs> right. Sure. You find yourself still, mostly gming or do you are you sort of able to bounce back and forth between the the two roles every once in a while i play but like in the last couple of months i've come to the realization that i really like running way more than i like playing Mm -hmm. and that seems to be a common thread with people who do that you know it's 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 um some people mentioned that if they're a little add they they also are much better at being gms than being players um, yeah, so that's pretty common. Or if you're a little bit of a control freak, like yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Can't do that. Totally. 
So Stacy, you and I have similar origin tales and that like I started in the second edition era. I know Hoy started it started in the first edition era. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, Stacy, how did you end up kind of getting into that OSR space? Did you were you kind of exploring pre-second edition back in the day or did you get to that later in your gaming timeline? Much later in my gaming timeline actually. Um, Same. um yeah, it was it was recently actually. Um when I got back into the to when I got back into gaming after MMOs, I basically I I left um the the video game industry because it was just hell. And then when I when I got back into to RPGs and tabletop RPGs, I got on Twitter because I actually have an Etsy shop um that I you know I sometimes like it's not open now, but that sells um, uh, like gaming related stuff. So, you know, I was like, I'll get on okay. Twitter so that I can get in the gaming groups and then, you know, I can, I can actually help push this stuff forward. And I joined, started joining the communities and I heard about this thing called the OSR and I wasn't sure exactly what it was. It was really until I, I, I joined Google Plus that things started, you know, really kicking off there. And then people were like, oh yeah, the OSR. And they started describing what it was. It was this old version of D&D and, and nobody really knows what the OSR is. You'd ask like 10 different people and they'll give you 10 different answers. Um, but it, 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 what, what drove me to it was the, the DIY you know, the, the whole idea that, you know, it, yeah. it felt like that back in the day when I was playing and running AD and D second edition, it was all Usenet. And, um, and, and there was tons. So I, w- I would just, I would just go through text file after text file after text file to pull random tables and all sorts of stuff. But cool. I got away from D and D for a long time. I, I played, um, world of darkness games, um, a, a lot. <laughs> right. And, um, I, I did some world of darkness LARPs. I bounced around all over the place and it really wasn't until the OSR came, came around that I got back into the, the kind of the D and D feel kind of thing. And even gotcha. now I'm playing, I'm running forbidden lands, um, which has an, a definite OSR feel to it, but has a slightly more modern mechanics. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And that's the free league game, right? The um, yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Now, in terms of the Appendix N, were you familiar with the concept of the Appendix N before we asked you to be on the show? Yeah, I was familiar with the concept. Um, I haven't read probably most of everything on it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, what was your fantasy reading like up through kind of when you first got really interested in fantasy? Well, when I when I first got interested in it was because um, I spent I spent a lot of time alone in high school, and I would I would like go to the library at lunch, and I would sit and read. I read mostly like historical um, um, fiction, and that kind of overlaps fantasy a little bit uh, in places, and and then um, I think it was. I'm trying to remember like the first fantasy book. I really think it was Dragonlance mm-hmm. okay. um, that, that first really got me into, into fantasy. And I think that was because that was written kind of for gaming. So, you know, it, it had that feel of the game already in it. And yeah. the, the trilogy just sucked me in. And I think that's really where I got deep into fantasy. And I don't think I've really read much outside of fantasy since then. <laughs> <laughs> fair fair right. and, and obviously fantasy even from the dragon lines period uh onwards is quite a, a sharp break from what uh appendix n uh, absolutely and then yeah. now we have um it would be fair to say i've uh, half or maybe even more than half of what's modern fantasy writers are women or people of color or at least the ones that are um was that something that you felt was very much missing when you were reading or, or were you able to project yourself into the stories, even though they weren't being created by, you know, you know, women or people of color at that point? Um, Dragonlance had, had really good 
female characters in it. Um, mm-hmm. And I could, I could put myself into their shoes. I've never, but, but I was more, I, I was more along the lines of putting myself into the shoes of the male protagonists, I think, mm-hmm. and the female characters. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's one of those things when you grow up and you don't you don't see a lot of you in reflected in media. You 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 make up stories of your own, like mm-hmm. you know, um, Star Wars. Um, I I didn't want to be Princess Leia. I wanted to be a Jedi. So you know, I, I took my dad's oversized white shirts and I put a belt around it and and I ran around with a with a with a paper towel um, um, tube as my as my lightsaber, and and you know, I would make up these new characters that would be part of, of this environment. So every time I read a fantasy book, that's kind of what I would do is I would kind of insert this character that wasn't there that would be kind of me, you know, in, in, in that kind of kind of realm. Okay. That kind of echoed the protagonist a little right, bit. Right, right. Which is interesting. When we get to it, there's right, some right. things no, that Yeah. Perfect. So today we are discussing the best of Lee Bracket, a collection of Lee Bracket stories. And Stacy, which edition of the book are you working with? Um, this one. Perfect. We're all three working from the same one. Awesome. This is the, right. the 1977 Del Rey collection with our Boris Vallejo cover. Yep. Yeah. Very well oiled as always. Yes. <laughs> Do you think this Boris Vallejo cover was actually? created for this piece for, for for this collection or do you think this is just a random Boris Vallejo piece that they threw on the cover it feels kind of random to me because I couldn't I couldn't place it in any of the stories I kept trying to I kept going back and looking at going okay which story is this supposed to be and I Holly and I, has a theory yeah. I think it's yeah I'm more in your camp I think it's I, I, think, it's, your camp, I think it's a not particularly accurate representation representation of Shannick the last because uh, he is the Trevor is specifically mentioned as having being stripped down to his shorts, and this has got a little loincloth. And this thing is kind yeah. of, some kind of set of semi petrified sitting on its throne. So I think it's uh, you know, Boris taking a license with Shannick the last. He might, he might not have even read the story, he was just told, like, there's a thing on a throne and a guy in a loincloth, and that's right. <laughs> <laughs> what about the woman and the other? Well, no, wait, no, there was another one, that right? I thought. That, that I thought it was like. Um, it was the one with Eric Stark in it. Oh, it could um, be Stark. Yep. It could be because it's all red. It's like under the mists. Yep. Yeah, there, yeah, yeah, under the mist. And there was that one scene where the daughter of I forget his name, um, yeah, the, the one of the Yeah, 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 was was on this statue. And if that lizard thing was a statue, then I could see that being being from yeah. that one. Oh yeah, it could be yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, yeah. Stark, okay. Yeah. Stark is, the Stark is supposed to have dark black skin. Right, exactly. <laughs> but that, that's a common thing that we yeah. can chat about more later. Yeah. But like, yeah, right. he was often depicted as not having black skin, despite yeah. what the stories all say. <laughs> uh, so before we go into the library, we'll take a quick look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Mm. Good. So I'm being cheap today, and I chose the word goad, which is also my last name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the reason I, I specifically selected it this time is go, goad is both a noun and a verb. Mm-hmm. The verb is to provoke or annoy someone so as to stimulate some action or reaction. Mm-hmm. And the noun is a spike stick that you use to drive cattle. And on page nine, the word goad is used twice, once as a verb and once as a noun. Um, it says the called started the line moving again using the wands like ox goads. Mm. 
And then further down, it says, but the calls goaded them on, and it wasn't until a third of the line was being held up bodily by those in front or behind that a halt was called. So our word of the day is my last name, Goad. (laughs) There you go. Is that how it's spelled, too? Yep, G O A D. Now, Stacy, do you have a word, or is that is that the what we're saying? If I picked the word, it would be opal because opal, sure. she really likes to describe things with opals. Opal, and the other word that pops up a lot is cinnabar, which yes, uh, cinnabar, that was a good one too. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. So we can head on into the library now, Stacy. What did you think of the best of Lee Bracket? I thought it was great. Um, I had I I. I, at first I had issues with the fact that it was, that it was written in the forties. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, but then once you start getting into it, it's, it's that kind of fades into the background a little bit. Every once in a while you're jarred back into reality. Like, I think it was like the second story. There was something about communism in it. And I was like, that's really weird in this place. And I was like, well, well, (laughs) that was the time, you know, that was, that was what was going on then. Um, but it was it was great. She she has a great imagination. I mean, her solar system is amazing. I read yeah. that she stopped writing about her solar system after the probes, you know, kind of found that there was no life on these on these planets. And it was it was it kind of made me a little bit sad. But <laughs> right, one, a great solar system. One of our um, one of we before the show we have a, uh, a sort of. Uh, coffee clutch with some of our patreon uh, uh sponsors and they're invited to talk about the book and one of the guests adam was mentioning that it's sad that this sort of sword and planet solar system thing is sort of a cul-de-sac in science fiction that just doesn't go anywhere anymore because of exactly what you said because of the oh, wow. we can't we can't picture now a, a desert mars with you know people riding yeah. across the desert or this jungle venus uh because yeah. we, know, we know too much now Yeah, if only if only they'd been named something different, I do think that these stories would be a lot more popular today than they are. But the very fact that they're called Venus, Mars, and Mercury, I think, kind of adds a hokiness to it that a lot of people can't get past. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I could definitely see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, kind of talking about how the fact that it was written in the 1940s kinds of keeps coming to the forefront while you were reading it. One thing I would like to point out is in the very first story on page six. Uh, She says, the sky was sometimes blue and sometimes black and silver. And then later says, that sky that changed like a woman's fancy. And it's like, (laughs) that's not the kind of prose you would expect from a female author. And I'm curious, do you think that that's really Lee Brackett writing? Or do you think that's her kind of pandering to the publishers? You know, I went back and forth with that. I actually had a long talk with my husband about that very thing yesterday because I was just like going back and forth about it. Is, is, she, is she writing these, these, I mean, the female characters, almost all of them, you know, are, are, are just terrible. They're just, they're just throwaway <laughs> characters, you know. I mean, they, they, they're, they, they have no sense, you know, for the most part, you know, they're, 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 they're helpless. They have to be helped everywhere that they go or they're, they're really evil, you know, um, um, or all they're looking for is love, you know, I mean, and, and it, it really, it, it really surprised me because, you know, it's kind of like, that's a woman writing, you know, um, but her male characters, you know, her protagonists are really all very well written. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's a weird kind of, um, um, displacement. Yeah, I did have issues with that constantly going through it. Every time, every time a female character of any sort was was treated badly, I kind of winced. <laughs> right. Interesting. Because um, we were talking earlier about that 
in many of the stories, nonetheless, the keeper of the actual knowledge, the woman who, the character who actually understands what's going on is actually one of the woman characters and not the male character. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah. There is that. That, right. that is an interesting aspect. Right. And to your point, Jeff, is she, do we know, right. Do we know, do we think she's playing with a trope, especially with that particular phrase? Is she, uh, has she internalized it in such a way that she's not even thinking about it? Um, it's hard to know, obviously, because, uh, you know, we don't have her to interview at this point. Right, about right. Um, and I'm willing to bet that she put in many drafts before she finally got accepted. And, you know, there's there's quite a big possibility that the only things that got accepted were the male protagonists, because that's what people wanted at the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's the same way how um, Andre Norton didn't really start having a lot of her, like, strong female characters until, like, the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, most of her 50s and 60s work all were, like, male protagonists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while reading this collection, did you have like a particular story that really stuck out for you? I think, was it The Veil of Astalar? No, not The Veil of Astalar. That was a good one. But um, which one was my favorite? It was, I think it was, it was The Moon That Vanished. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's the one where they kind of go into the mist and start having their, their visions of the other world. Yeah. 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 And just like the, the main character, um, um, what was his name? Um, Heath, I think. Heath, yeah, Heath. Um, yeah, David Heath. David Heath, yeah. He um he was so flawed and um so screwed up. And I I, I mean she like almost all of her characters are like this, but but it's except for except for Stark. <laughs> Stark's <laughs> the only one out of her characters that isn't just completely screwed up. Um and and uh, and he falls in love with this girl who's already with a you know another guy and then there's this big fight and they're they're creating stuff and he figures out how to well, I don't wanna I don't want to spoil it. Oh, we're, we're fine with spoilers on this <laughs> oh, show. People who listen okay. to the show fully, fully realize we're going to spoil the heck out of it. So. And, you know, and then he finally figures out, oh, if I can create, I can also destroy. And he starts destroying everything, you know, around him. And, and, then, he, and then he has the strength to actually leave the moon fire, you know, which nobody else did because everybody else just stuck around. And it's like it's, she's, she's got these terribly flawed characters who in the end make these amazing choices and decisions to, to save people or like in, in one of, in a couple of them, the, the, the protagonist dies in his effort to help out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that kind of particular character arc is really kind of compelling in the veil of Astalar as well, Yeah, because that's the one where our main character is a soul sucking genocidal vampire who travels from dimension to dimension just completely slaughtering people on mass and sucking their soul energy with his girlfriend. <laughs> and this time around, he kind of ends up back in his own dimension. And one of the people who he has kidnapped to suck the soul of is apparently his granddaughter or something, yeah, great, great, which makes him like, yeah. yeah. So he starts questioning this now and he ends up destroying um, his girlfriend and their whole plot, even though he still loves that woman, still wants to be with her. So he's very much like a flawed character who's still very conflicted about what's right or wrong for him. But he kind of just goes with what feels right and destroys all of this. The Veil of Astalar was like, when I read that one, it was like, it, it could have been a Doctor Who episode. Hmm. I, yeah. I read it. And as soon as I was done with it, I was like, I feel like I just watched a Doctor Who episode because that totally could have been a Doctor Who episode. Hmm. <laughs> And I was thinking also that again, we had Michael Moorcock at one point on the show, but we never we didn't talk to him about 
the, you know, Lee Brackett, but I feel like this was almost a sort of a proto Mulnabonian uh, story because we have this character whose his hair has gone white. He's almost an albino. He lives by sucking the souls out of things just the way that Stormbringer does, right? Um, Actually, I think he said that he loved Lee okay. Brackett. I'm pretty sure because I'm pretty sure we asked him about the three female authors: right. Lee Brackett, Andre Norton, and Margaret St. Clair. Mm-hmm. And I think he said he loved Lee Brackett, hadn't read much Andre Norton, had never heard of Margaret right, St. Clair. Right. I think I guess what we didn't know is were there any specific stories that he mentioned. That, that is what I'm saying, I guess. Um, gotcha. Um, but there is this element of um, uh, sort of early antiheroes, right? And which doesn't surprise us because Lee Brackett was also a, a you know, a celebrated film noir uh, screenwriter right. and, and um, you know, and Western writer. writer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So she has these very conflicted characters um, and that's pretty important. And they don't always make the right choice, right? But if they do, yeah. it's to the, to the tune of their own self-destruction, right? If yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And is it Empire Strikes Back that she co-wrote? Uh, she wrote, I think, the early draft. It's not. It's not so much clear how much of that is still hers, or how yeah. much came Lawrence Kasdan's um, screenplay at the point that was. Um, but she did write that. I think the first draft of that. So I heard that. Gotcha. Like all, I read that the the major beats in Empire Strikes Back are still hers. Like like you know the the major fights and battles and the things that happened in it were were part of her draft. Um, but that they rewrote pretty much everything else around it. Um, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, but she still got credit. Um, even George Lucas didn't take credit for writing, even even though he did a part of it. But they made sure to put her in there mm-hmm. posthumously. <laughs> right. Totally. So now the character that Lee Brackett is kind of most famous for writing is Eric John Stark. So let's go ahead and chat about him for a little bit and the Enchantress of Venus, which is our only Eric John Stark story included in this collection. Um, what did you think of our black-skinned Mercurian with his bulging muscles? He was like the only one out of all of the characters that she wrote. He was the only one who was like this this um, prototypical hero kind of character. You know, you know, he was he was he was tough. He's big. You know, he's, he's the male he's, fantasy wish fulfillment yeah, hero. Yeah, exactly. He's there to save the day. You know, he's he's gonna do whatever it takes. He's gonna walk right into that castle on the hill, and he's gonna tell those people, you know, what's what. And, and, and he's the smartest, and he's the strongest, yeah, and yeah. he's the best looking. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> right. As soon as he walks into the Laurie's den, uh, Vera, is it Vera? V- um, I'm forgetting your name. She's like, oh. This is the first real man I've seen yeah. since our since our <laughs> grandfather died. <laughs> he was great. I, mean, I was right. like, this character is awesome. <laughs> He's still a contrast, though, to like say the Conan. Not that not that Conan is unintelligent because he clearly yeah. is written as intelligent. But Brat, um, uh, sorry, Eric John Stark is much more um, willing to let things come to him. In a way, than than Conan. Conan would come in and start cra- cracking heads right away, right? Whereas Eric <laughs> Stark is sort of there to let the situation sort of unfold. He's like the catalyst for a lot of stuff, but he's gonna let yeah. he's gonna let a lot of bad people sow the seeds of their own self destruction first before he <laughs> you know before he takes decisive action. You know, yeah, he took he took time to kind of figure out what was going on there and sort it out and find out where he could get in, and then right. he just. Right. You just let everything tear itself apart. <laughs> right. Which is not, again, not unlike a film noir situation where the, the private eye comes in and sort of like pokes and prods and lets, lets people's worst instincts surface. Yes. Yes. That's, and it's very mystery-like. I read in the after she wrote a lot of mysteries before she did this. Yeah. <laughs> and Lee Brackett's somebody who's clearly very interested in the topic of racial injustice. 
you know, these stories are written in the 40s and 50s, but we have previously on an earlier episode read a collection called The Halfling and Other Stories by Lee Brackett. And those included later stories. And one of them was from the 1960s and was about this like green-skinned alien couple who came down to Earth into some small town in the South and they're almost murdered and are like forced out of town. In fact, or and I think, yeah, I think the woman is raped. Yep. And definitely implied that that's happened. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's, it's this really heartbreaking, upsetting story about wow. being other in a small southern town. Yeah, and I think that what the way she handles Eric John Stark is really interesting. You know, he's this black-skinned man who twice in the story it's referred to that somebody says a short, cruel word to him. She doesn't say what the word is, but mm-hmm. I think we can use our imagination and assume what what word she means there. Yeah. And here we have a character who thinks he's safe on this ship leading into the city, but it turns out they're actually trying to sell him into slavery, and he ends up kind of leading this big slave revolt. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, what did you think of the Enchantress of Venus in terms of it being an allegory for racial injustice written in 1949? Uh, It's hard to, to see it that way. I mean, I can see it that way, but it's difficult because like, John Stark is still written like a white guy. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get the feeling that that he was anything else, despite the fact that you know his skin was supposed to be dark. And she always seems to have these these um, these sharp contrasts. Like his skin is is dark black. I mean, she didn't. It's not, it's not like brown or cocoa or any other. You know, yeah, it's of, black. Yeah, it's black. You know, and and um, and and he still you know acts like like a like a like a white guy would. So it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't feel like this is a guy that that's bit that's experienced this kind of Depression in his life. Sure. It, doesn't, it doesn't really feel like that at all. Um, right. He's generally more depicted as an outsider, a pure outsider, than yeah, as, as a person yeah. who is. And so that's more like almost like a, a, a Western archetype, like a you know, cowboy Western meaning, you know, um, yeah, who is yeah. outside of civilization, or maybe even to a certain extent, um, the, the, the stereotype of the, uh, the noble savage of like a, a Native American or something like that. Yeah. 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 Right. And, that was, it was closer to that, I think. Right. And I do think she's fairly attuned to that because I think a lot of the stories are about colonizers or settlers coming into a space where there is a, a civilization that or a, a society that pre-exists. Maybe it's died out or dying out. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that might be reflective of, again, her sort of California upbringing. She's very grew up in California, very conscious of being in a place is newly settled by mm-hmm. Western standards. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And um, so I wonder, I mean, and Stacey, you're out in California, right? Are you, this, is that something that sort of kind of impinges on your consciousness to a certain extent when you're? When yeah. I mean, I mean, I live in San Diego and I mean, I think, I think 40% of the population is um, Hispanic, Latino. So, you know, I mean, it, so it, it's like, it's, you just kind of, when you grow up in that environment, um, you kind of understand a little bit more of what's going on. Because everything around you, everything around me, like is, is you know, it's like we're still in Mexico, you know, everything is like named, um, with, with Spanish names, you know, and, and stuff like that. So, so there's this, so everything around you, you can see the culture that was here before, 
but it's been, you know, co-opted by this whole, you know, group of white people that came in and colonized the place and took it over and, and, and turned it into California. Um, so we see a lot here. I mean, we, we really do. And um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's probably, plus, you know, I think California has always been a little bit more progressive than, than, you know, most of the rest of the country. I know she moved to the Midwest eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure she saw a lot of difference between the two places that, that she was at. At least I hope she did. Um, right. I, at first I was like, I, I wasn't sure about her, her, message on colonization because i think it's like the second story they end up like killing they end up committing genocide twice killing like two races so that they can settle vanishing venusians yeah yeah and and i was just like oh that's terrible and then i went to wikipedia and i I looked it up i was like oh she's criticizing oh that was supposed to be terrible okay okay i get it then i kept going (laughs) yeah and it's interesting because like also specifically the way it's done like this guy comes into this land and sees these like beautiful creatures instantly falls in love with this gorgeous woman who's actually like a plant amphibian thing um and he's like do you love me and she's like i don't know what love is that's not what i do and he's like, oh, well, she doesn't know what love is. She doesn't love me. That means she has no soul. And therefore, we can destroy their entire race. Yeah. And they do. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Two of and, them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But uh, yeah. And it, yeah. But ultimately, it's still to his self-destruction, right? And there's a, there's yeah. a sense of shame. And um, and this one is, uh, again, I, don't, I hesitate to push too heavily on allegory. But this one, you can see that there is, again, the, um, what was the name of the... Um, the three of the, the, the black character who went with them up into the Sim. Sim. Yeah. Well, Sim is maybe not fully fleshed, but he's maybe like, um, sure. every, every time we see him, he's just singing a spiritual, right. but there's a I attempt know. to give him dignity. Right. And he's a person who is trying his best to help, but he will not see the, the fruits of his labor. Right. He knows that yeah. he will not. Yeah. And then the horrible main protagonist, but he's the bad man that supposedly may, may bring good. And then the last character is the guy who actually has a young wife and stuff like he will benefit from all the bad things that have been done. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe his hands, yeah. he can maybe feel, which like, is who we all are. Right. Now. He can maybe yeah. feel his hands are slightly cleaner because he didn't do that directly. And so that's yeah. maybe a good, um, again, again, the word allegory, I don't want to use that, but it is maybe a good allegory for the settlement of this country and development mm-hmm. of this country. Right. Yeah. 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 I think so. I mean, yeah. It was just terrible. (laughs) Yeah, and then similarly in The Woman from Altair, you know, at first the villain of the story is the woman from Altair. She's murdering the members of this family with her psychic tiara. um, And because of this, innocent dogs and horses are being slaughtered left and right in addition to the family members. Um, But we do eventually learn that all of this is happening because of the main character's brother, who basically bought this woman against her will from her family. And she's just furious and she dies in the end and she doesn't get her justice. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the evil of what's been done is very much being recognized within the story. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. It's basically the sort of the, the, the non-romantic version of Pocahontas, right? Is this <laughs> Right. Yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. so. The historical version, right. you yeah. mean. <laughs> right. And and there is shame, right? The McCorys do recognize, you know, the, the the narrator of the story is the one who doesn't yeah. go out into space, but his whole family has been a family of spacers and colonizers. And he, he wants to end that tradition because he realizes it's a shameful thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of those messages in there. Right. And one of the arguments that I really can't get behind is I know there are a lot of people who like to go back to fiction written this era because this is pre-message fiction and before people are trying to tell us what to think, you know, 
people people like to act as though fiction from this era didn't have a message or a meaning. And I think Lee Brackett's work absolutely does. Oh, and I think you go back and you read the Martian Chronicles and those absolutely have yeah. a- allegory and meaning and message in them. Uh, so I completely reject that argument. Yeah, that, that's 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 nuts. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so looking at this from a gaming perspective, yeah. Stacey, while you were going through this, was there anything that really leapt out at you as like, oh, this feels very D and D, or oh, this feels very gameable? That whole section where Sim and Harper and the other guy are going through the caves and the swimmers come out, and the way that she describes the swimmers is just it's freaking amazing i was like oh my god these monsters are killer and like i i got i i i get it i get now why why creating your own monsters is better than using like these these prepackaged monsters because that's exactly what she was doing like you know and there's there's these there's these swimmer hounds that are chasing them and these little children's swimmers that are that are just kind of mean but you know curious at the same time and then there's these giant things that come up and it's just the description is amazing and the chase scene is also i mean her her I've, as a writer i've always been terrible at writing action scenes her ability to write action scenes the way that she does is i'm just i'm completely jealous of it because it's so <laughs> good <laughs> so now if you want to empower somebody who's listening to this show to write their own monsters and write their own encounters i know that that can sound very intimidating to somebody right. who hasn't just done it before so do you have any advice for somebody who wants to do that but you, but who doesn't want to like accidentally overpower their party well i mean you know and and the, the whole one of the concepts of osr that i like a lot is that it's unbalanced you know it, it's yeah. like it's it's, it's just kind of like, you know forbidden lands is like that too it's not one of the things that, that i like about it. like my players never know if they can actually take something or not um yeah. and and that makes it more interesting i think um when i create new creatures and i think i saw this some um, in the way that lee Brackett created creatures i think about the environment that they're in um and i'm like the swimmers very very much a product of their environment you know i mean they're 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 underwater creatures um they're they're really really pale because they've been underground for all of this time you know um i mean even that ends up being their downfall because once the sun comes out they they just basically die um and burn up in, in in the atmosphere um and, and it's, it's, that's, that's kind of how I start with things. You know, if there's this beautiful jungle or this beautiful forest, you know, what about the people that, that live there? What do they look like? You know, mm-hmm. and if they're all beautiful, and that's, that's like I can say, and if they're all beautiful, what happens to the ugly things? What do they do with the ugly things? Right. And you know? we find totally. out. Yes. Yeah. You do find out what they do with the ugly things. You know, so, so, so when I, when I create creatures, I start asking questions, you know, and, and yeah. answering those questions, you know, what's the environment like, you know, um, what would be an interesting kind of thing to attack these things? Um, I, I I was working on a project that is still kind of on the back burner. Um, when I got cancer, um, I just went through breast cancer a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because of that, you know, I take things out of my own life, you know, because of that in there, there's this giant tumor monster, you know, I mean, yeah. so, you know, um, um, pull things out. Of and maybe life. body horror works its yeah. way in this right. idea of something growing oh, inside yeah. of you. Oh yeah. There's th- that's there too, because I, I have a port right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it it has this catheter that goes up into my into my um, um, jugular vein, um, okay. and uh, uh, I can feel it sometimes in there. 
And when I was, when I was going through chemo, I could really feel it like all the time. So I started writing these creatures because that's like, that's like how I was feeling like, like there was something inside of me that was growing in, in, in my veins and was, and, and, and so, you know, I started writing creatures like that too, you know, totally. you can take anything and create a creature out of it. Right. And I think, (laughs) um, you, you bring up an interesting thing because I, it's particularly with Lee Brackett, Lee Brackett, one of her amazing strengths is a sense of place. Right, yeah. very situated oh, yeah. and grounded, and we just had um, Evie Lockhart on the other week, and her show is about to drop. And she was talking about how much for her what OSR means is that it is grounded in uh, a imaginary reality, but a reality that is tangible to her, right? And that's yeah. a little bit different than the games that are uh, purely driven by story concerns, right. right? And not to not not to knock one over the other, but I'm just saying that OSR to me seems to be very much more grounded in sort of the world or the physicality of what's being created. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot opposed, of that. As opposed to be pure narrative concerns. Um, right. And so that then leads to your game, for example, of creating monsters that are situated in their environment or are part of their environment. Um, yeah. In a way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love the way you described environments, by the yeah. way. I mean, that shoot, blew me away. Right. <laughs> And I think another thing that one can easily do is if you want to empower people to incorporate their own monstrous creations, if you're not really sure where to start, look at an existing monster. Mm -hmm. Say, what's a monster that feels like this is kind of um, a a good good bouncing off point for me? Mm -hmm. Like maybe open up the the monster manual and look at the barracuda. Open up the Monster Manual 2 and look at the flump. Right. Uh, go, open up the Fiend Folio and look at the Aarakocra. Right. Like whatever it is, like you're kind of building off of, take a look at that and maybe just kind of tweak right. some numbers and ta-da, call it whatever you want, describe it how you want, but now you have like all the stats that you right. need. And then I would also add to that, it's like, if I was in this particular situation or in this particular place, what would scare me? Oh right. yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Sometimes I do that with my with my games, with my campaigns. Like, like I get an idea of what would freak out the characters the most, and then I make that monster. <laughs> now we're getting a lot of telepathy and yes. telekinesis and psychic mind battles in these stories as well. Yes. So, Stacy, what are your thoughts on psionics in OSR games? I, I that's never something that I really got into or liked i I don't Uh know why um is it the aesthetics or is it the implementation of them implementation really more than anything like like telepathy and telekinesis and that stuff i think is really cool and i think the idea of psionics is really cool but but every time i tried to touch it it seemed like it was just like too much (laughs) it's so clunky yeah (laughs) right i think that if it is psionics it almost seems like in the same way that like D&D is created around a Vancean magic system, you have to create a, a game around a psionic system. Yes, right. yes, right. yes. Um, now, the fortunate thing, with again, with OSR games, um, I, you know, they talk sometimes about how they're not as elegant as these sort of modern game systems. But mm-hmm. the fact that they're not as elegant does mean that it's easier to pull out stuff. Like, you could pull out the Vancean magic system and replace it with a completely new magic system. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or, yeah. in this case, no magic at all, just psionics. Right. Right. But it doesn't have to look like the D and D existing D and D psionics. It could be so something totally different. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely. <laughs> whereas there was a game that was very hyper tuned to, um, you know, a new magic system and that was the, the core essence of it. Then it doesn't become, that's not that game anymore. If you try to substitute that. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's very true. 
Now, while reading these stories, they all take place on Mars, Venus, Mercury, um, for the most part. The last two don't, but most of them do. Um, and we have almost no um, intergalactic travel happening in the stories or people on spaceships in the stories. Right. The actual stories themselves could very easily be taking place in a fantasy world, which is one of the, the beautiful parts of, um, of Sword and Planet. And if you wanted to do kind of a Lee Brackett style Sword and Planet game, would you want to be playing something that had more of that hard sci-fi tacked on in case you wanted to do more intergalactic stuff? Or would you be just as happy using Swords and Wizardry or something like that? I mean, right now I, I, I use Forbidden Lands for everything. So, you know, it's like, like, like it's my favorite hammer right now. So um, yeah. I use it for every nail. Um, and it's, and mostly because it's got a really good balance of narrative and um, and you know combat and, and that, that kind of stuff. Like like the crunchy and and the fluffy are are very well you know um, balanced. So we get a lot of both. Um, and I, I, maybe that's kind of where I would like to go with that question: is say yes to both because um, I, I think you could you could you could probably use something like swords and wizardry or you know OD and D of any 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 flavor really um, to build this. It wouldn't be hard, you know, at all. You, you would, you would probably need to add um, um, psionics to it. Um, but, you know, other than that, you're, you're basically playing humans um, who are, you know, strangers in a strange land kind of thing. Um, it, it's really kind of like a way that, you know, you, you could do a sword and planet kind of things because they, they give you um, adventure sites. They don't tell you where to go and when to go and how to go. They just give you adventure sites and a map it, with a bunch of adventure sites on it and stickers for the specific adventure sites. So you can either make a random adventure site for wherever this place is on the map that they're going, which there are tons of tables for. It's another thing that I love the OSR for, random tables. I love random tables. <laughs> yes, <laughs> preach. I'm a nut for random tables. Um, but, you know, there's, there's just a ton of them for creating villages, for creating dungeons, for creating castles. Um, and then in, in the Bitter Reach, there's, there's, there's generators for creating ice caves and creating elven ruins and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And there's these existing adventure sites that you can go to. So it's a little bit, it's a lot more exploratory. Right. Then I think yeah. then I think a lot of D and D games end up being because um, you you end up be going to a specific spot and going to that dungeon and going into that dungeon and doing things and this is more like you're exploring the entire world because because the world has been has been has been uh, unaccessible for a long right. time so there's a lot of um, it's, it's a lot of new exploration in places right. that people haven't seen in hundreds I mean, of years. What you're describing could literally be the story of the last days of Shandikor, right? Yeah, exactly. Because he is <laughs> literally planning to go in one direction until he meets this one, the last of the Shandikorians, yeah. and he decides to go in this other direction. Oh, yeah. city. And then we have these wonderful, you know, wonderful Mars maps in the back that were basically fan maps that were created. Yes, I love that, too. I, I, I looked at the back because I wanted to see if there were any maps, and I saw them. I didn't read the, the stuff about them. And then when I got to the end, I did read it, and I was like, oh, my God, that's a fan map. That is so awesome. And she talks about when she made it, about how she actually took the, the, the survey results from Mars and tried to actually, you know, place everything where, where it would have, where, you know, it should be based on what Mars actually looks like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think um, that's, yeah, that's an interesting way to do. And, uh, and I guess... It seems to me, you know, to a certain extent, you don't want to like nail, use a square peg in a round hole, but 
the OSR systems, BX, OD&D, are so sort of modular and flexible. Yeah. I mean, maybe not elegant, but modular and flexible. AD&D, I think, would be more difficult because AD&D has a level of uh, implied world in it in the way that yeah. OD&D and maybe BX don't. Um, yeah, I think AD&D is where they kind of started getting into the, the idea of, of the D&D world. Right. Um, and I think even DCC, to a certain extent, Jeff, we could pull that apart. I mean, what's Stark? But, you know, he's a warrior. And he's got some deeds, right? And then... Oh, yeah. Um, so I think DCC, you know, you would have to maybe not use magic and find something to substitute for the magic users, you know, but DCC, there's a, a, such a wealth of like third party classes that people have created. And it's just creativity that's been unleashed there that I think you could certainly do these stories as DCC, I think. Um, totally. Yeah. I think any OD&D you could use. I mean, I, I, think, I think you're exactly right. When, once you get to AD&D, that's when, that's when it starts becoming more, you know, um, D&D's world building. But before that, you've got this like perfectly yeah. modular system. You could take stuff out of it and put stuff back in. And it's not hard to create new things for it. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah, totally. So now, was there a specific character or a set of characters that you think would be fun to steal from these stories and put into your Forbidden Lands adventures? Uh, I love the swimmers. Um, okay. How about the Lari? Uh, the Lari are great. Lari yeah, were so great. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, that was another one that totally, you know, the Eric John Stark, the whole thing totally reminded me of a Doctor Who thing. And and Eric John Stark could have been the Doctor for, 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 for all powerful as he was. Right. But again, he's a stranger who comes in and sort of instigates, yeah. Stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like they're like, no, don't go up there. The warrior up there, and he's like, and he's like, I'm gonna go up there. Just, just tell everybody I'm going up there. And he just walks right in, you know. <laughs> and they're like, who's this guy? He's just kind of walking in, and it's like this totally dysfunctional family, inbred family, and you know, like they kind of let you know that they've been inbreeding for a while, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And that's such a weird and wonderful environment when they drop drop into the red mist and they're sort of swimming, right? And that's, you know, that's always been a problem with D&D is running sort of underwater adventures. And this is like the closest I've seen to something that would be like a good, successful underwater adventure. Like you just like, we'll just hand wave the fact that you can breathe because they're not really in water. They're in these mists, but they're moving like as if they're swimming, right? And then there's this weirdly perfectly preserved thing. You know, for sure. Is the, yeah, is, is that red gassy substance that they can float on and breathe and right. well breathe for a while at least right and it sort of limits their, their visibility they can't see more yeah. than like 30 60 feet you know and that kind of stuff like that and that that would seem to work really well if you're using any kind of like um uh virtual desktop uh virtual tabletop and you have the yeah. fog, fog of war type stuff going on yeah kind of limiting what they can see so <laughs> So how would you feel about the queer ones as a Call of Cthulhu one-shot? Oh, yeah, that would really work well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could totally see that. Right. I mean, it's definitely a sort of um, sort of a, a play on the Dunwich Horrors, I think, that's that particular story. You know, I mean, whether it's literally or not, I, I don't know what if she had read any Lovecraft. I wouldn't be surprised if she did, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, I would expect that she probably did. I mean, because it's not just that story, but there's a couple of stories that felt very um, Cthulhu-ish, you know. I mean, um, the other one was, was what was the one? It was the one with a little. It was one of the last ones. It was the one with a little monster. The tweener. The tweener. The tweener. Yeah, that one also felt like a, a very kind of Cthulhu-ish kind of thing. And mm. got this little thing that might be doing something to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, and as as Hoy pointed out in the pre-show, the 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 tweener also felt very much like a Twilight Zone episode. Oh yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely see that as a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> and I think again, the queer ones was also even though those those two stories are, again are grounded, they're basically our modern day. Well, at that point, it was the 1950s, but the our modern day Earth. Um, again, yeah. she has a tremendous sense of place, right? She's just talking about the heat and the humidity of a like a you know, Eastern seaboard summer in the, in the tweener and the fact that, you know, he can't sleep and it's, yeah, and you don't realize that that, no that's the thing that's, right. That's the thing that's making him crazy. And it's like, he, he thinks it's like the little rabbit thing. Right. And then <laughs> at the end he finds out he just killed this thing, his kid's pet okay. for no reason. Okay. What do you, do you, do you think that the little thing was actually doing it or not? Cause I think the little thing was actually doing it. That's a good question. I mean, it's, it's just ambiguous enough, right? That, and yeah, right, right. She leaves it there. Right? Like. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was too, but I'm, I'm with you. I, I like that. We don't actually yeah. fully know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and- another thing that I thought was really interesting was how in the very first story, the jewel of boss, uh, Sierra is like, not only is he called a bard, but he basically is kind of a straight up bard, which is not really something I've seen in the appendix. And now I've heard that the bard was inspired by Manly Wade Wellman's uh, Silver John stories, uh, John the Balladeer. Um, But he's never called a bard in that. And here he's called a bard. Mm -hmm. He, he walks, he's an adventurer who walks around playing his harp. And he also has access to, um, Deep, deeply seated, unknown lore from his knowledge of like traveling around singing right. songs. And he's got some yeah. thiefy skills that, you know, from earlier in yep. his career, which is what you have to do to have that bard progression in AD&D, right? <laughs> and there's several times in there where his music like does something. Like, right. you know, yes. You know, it, it awakens, um, um, what's his name? The, the Bat. Bat. Yeah, Bat. Yeah, Bat. Yeah, Bat. Right. Yeah. yeah, you know, he, he uses his harp to awaken him. He uses his harp to pull the, the humans away from, from the, the, the bad things that are happening so that you know the the psychic backlash doesn't kill them all you know he uses it several times and i was like this is such a bird <laughs> <laughs> but never once does he use his at will power of vicious mockery <laughs> <laughs> well you know to be fair she didn't have fifth edition available to her at the time so <laughs> <laughs> she was working with what she had <laughs> no um, and, and it's funny because Boss is this, you know, beautiful youth, but he's also strangely Lovecraftian, right? He's this thing that dead lies, yeah. d- dead lies dreaming, essentially, right? And yeah. and the the androids are sort of interpreting his will to a certain extent, but they're also totally about self-preservation. And in a way, they're villainous, but in a way, it's completely understandable, right? They just want to survive if Boss wakes up and his his dream collapses in on itself, right? That yeah. they want to survive. Um, so... And even the way that she describes the androids are very Lovecraftian. Like on page 25, she says, it came from a brain as alien and incomprehensible as darkness in a world of eternal light, a brain no human could ever touch or understand except to feel the cold weight of its strength and cower as a beast cowers before the terrible mystery of fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah. And, and just in general, her prose is fantastic. Right. Like on the very first page, uh, she describes Mouse as uh, her hair was black and wild as though only wind had ever combed it. <laughs> and I love the idea of like hair that had only been combed by the wind. <laughs> it's 
so cool. <laughs> no, her prose is, is gorgeous. It's always like the color, the sense of color that she brings through. Um, whether it's red, murky mist in, uh, you know, in yeah. Camp Venus, and um, she likes to describe things as opals. Opal, a lot. yep. Um, it's like how howard often describes conan as being panther-like it's like how often or is he described like a panther in his stories um (laughs) the other thing actually i think you pointed uh since you were just mentioning lovecrafty and we've been talking about that she's not uh shy of having her protagonist exhibit fear like like, oh yeah right uh both in the moral sense which leads them to do a lot of bad things but actual literal fear like i was terrified is that she says a lot of times you know the protagonist you know, I think that's one of the interesting things about like a woman writing a male character is like is like she's not afraid as you know or as as you know um, stifled as a lot of men are when they're when they're raised you know like not to show emotion so she's not really afraid to have her character show emotion because you know women are actually you know uh, encouraged to show emotion you know right. um, so so it makes these these much more I think three dimensional characters than a lot of characters that that, that I've read that are heroes and these kind of stories right. and they're, they're much more interesting because of that so so one of the questions that was brought up uh i think sort of implied at the beginning of the show but also in the the pre-show is do you feel like if that there's something uh like she's a woman writer right do you feel that there's something uniquely feminine about these stories or can you identify that this is a woman writer just by reading them because obviously all the protagonists are men I haven't read a lot of sci-fi because when I started trying to read sci-fi, it was too much hard sci-fi for me. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had if I had started with Sword and Planet stuff, I probably would have liked it a lot more and, and stuck with it a lot more because I mean, you know, I'm loving this. Um, but to answer the question, I don't think so. And and in fact, if if I didn't know that she was a woman, would I have guessed that she was a woman by the writing? Um, I'm not sure I would have because, because of the fact that they're all male protagonists. I certainly Um, wouldn't have, if I was read this in as a teenager, I certainly would not have guessed. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't if I read it today and didn't know it was a female writer, I I would not have guessed. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I, I, and and I read that she, um, that there, that she, she, she took a lot of inspiration from, you know, other male writers that, that she was a big fan of herself. So, um, so you know, she she probably built her her whole idea of writing and, the, and the, her voice, you know, based on, on on reading male writers, you know. So um, it, it probably came out a lot more like that when she right. started writing. I mean, the two um, things I would say are, for lack of better words, stereotypically female, uh, as you yeah. mentioned, was the emotionality of the protagonists, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of fact that the women are keepers of certain kinds of knowledge in the story that the the male characters don't have. Right. Yeah. And um, certainly, you know, in the women of Altair, the woman of Altair herself, but also Martha Keller, you know, the reporter is the one who has a lot more insight in some cases than mm-hmm. the other characters. Um, yeah. Yeah. And she's totally. the one who's like, it's this ring that's doing it. And she tears it off. Of the <laughs> and he's like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm much better now. Right. And, <laughs> oh, yeah. She was, I actually thought she was a pretty, she was like probably the like badass female yeah, character. Yeah, she, right. she, she was right. my favorite right. out of all. And, of yeah, she was cool. and Jen was quite tough in Shannak the Last, right? You know, she does get rescued, by, but she also conversely does rescue the protagonist himself, Trevor. Um, and so she's quite tough. She can, you know, yeah. takes a lot yeah. more pain than sort of like the, Howardian female characters, uh, you know, in the Conan stories, right? She she's shown being scarred by these these hawk hawk lizard creatures, right? Yeah, sure. Um, 
So we are running out of time. Stacy. before we wrap up, was there something about the Lee Brackett stories you really wanted to chat about? Or should we just go ahead and close up? I think. I think honestly, we've already talked about everything I wanted to. I wanted to talk about the male protagonist. I wanted to talk about getting, you know, lost in the 40s every once in a while, getting slapped in the face with, oh, yeah, this is the 40s. You know, and, and we talked about all of it, which is great. I love the book. I really love Lee Brackett. I wish it's so around. fun. I wish she could have gotten to write some Doctor Who episodes. That would have been great for that. <laughs> So, Stacey, do you have any projects you're working on you want to tell people about? Uh, what, where can people find you online and projects you're working on? Um, right now, I am kind of uh, taking a little bit of break from working on things so that I can just run lots of Forbidden Lands because I love it. Um, nice. Also, you know, with all the stress of, you know, the virus and everything, I am a high-risk person, so I'm kind of stuck inside for yeah until there's a vaccine. Um, thankfully, I'm running two groups online, so, you know, it's, it's kind of keeping me occupied. Um, but, uh, um, I'm the founder of Contessa. Contessa is an organization that runs conventions, mini conventions inside of bigger conventions, um, with, where everything is written, where everything is run by marginalized people, um, in various ways, you know, uh, um, skin color, uh, ethnicity, um, um, uh, sexual orientation, gender, you know, all, all of those, all of those intersections we, we try to hit. Um, and by doing that, we're are in, in an effort to kind of, you know, make gaming a little bit more diverse um, and to get more diverse voices into kind of leadership roles. Because we're seeing more and more like a 50-50, you know, split between two genders. You know, I'm, I'm non-binary myself, so, you know, there's there's more than two genders. But, um, but you know, we're seeing a lot of, uh, um, a lot more players coming in who aren't the, the usual demographic. And, uh, but we're not seeing as many going up to the point of being GM and GMing is uh, a, a portal uh, to me to, to creating. Like, you know, once you start writing house rules, you might as well be a game designer because that's what you're doing. Right. So, yeah. you know, we try to encourage people to GM because we hope that they'll end up being creators and they'll go on to make us, you know, give us a more diverse industry. But you can find more about Contessa at, um, at Contessa.rocks, which is a URL. Um, and, um, you can read about our mission and what we're doing. We're kind of, um, dormant right now because of COVID-19. Um, but you know, we'll, we'll come back to life hopefully, you know, after everything is over and you can find out more about us there. And, that's, and that's is, is Contessa planning on doing virtual cons within other virtual cons? We did. We did one of our own, like almost immediately after lockdowns went out. Um, and it went okay, but really it was way too much effort on my part. So it's like, it's only me running things right now because of the rest of my staff is either high risk or they're working from home and they're, they're experiencing this issue where their bosses are actually making them work more Right. when they're working from home. There's like more stress on them. Right. Um, so I don't really have a lot of help. Uh, so we haven't really been doing much and I think we're probably going to remain dormant until, you know, everything is all over. Um, one of our people is in Canada, you know, and, 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 and international travel of any sort right now is, you know, a really bad idea. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's the way I put it to my staff is like, it's gaming is great, but it's not worth risking your life right now. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we'll, we'll be back though. Right. All right. And Hoy, how can folks find us? All right. If you want to uh, drop us a note, let us know what you think. You can uh, email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. Uh, we're also on Facebook and uh, MeWe, if you can look us over there. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? 
Yes. So you can head on over to patreon.com slash appendix and book club and show us your support there. Prior to this episode, we had a really fun discussion with Joe Hoopman and Adam Styers, who are two of our patrons on the show. And um, when you're a patron of the Appendix N Book Club, you're able to participate in these patron book clubs that happen beforehand. We have spots coming up for most of the ones that are coming up. However, our show for Michael Moorcock's The Vanishing Tower is already fully RSVP'd. But if you're a patron, you can go ahead and sign up for any of the other ones. Um, I'd also like to give a quick shout out to a few of our patrons. Thank you to Andrew Satan, uh, Andy Action, Angus, Bruce Erickson, Christopher Murray, Eric Hicks, Ethan Schoonover, Noah Green, and Peter Martino. Thank you so much for your support. And Stacy, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for having me and making me read a book. <laughs> <laughs> it is a pleasure. And uh, I've probably read far more books than I would have in the last three years uh, otherwise. That's so awesome. it's good to have my brain working again. Oh, 100%. <laughs> okay. See you in the stacks. Read on. <laughs> the library is closed.